Hello, everyone, and welcome to Future Imagined, a foresight podcast dedicated to futures thinking. I'm Joe Lapore. I lead Foresight for North America as part of Mars Wrigley's global Foresight team. And I'm Sophie Briarcliffe, and I lead Foresight for Europe. Joe, it's so exciting to co-host our very first show together, and particularly because you and I have just spent the last few weeks deep diving into the really important topic, which is impulse. And I'm not just talking about impulse categories or impulse in store, but really impulse as a driving force of our human motivations. Absolutely. It's such a transformative area that our business leaders need to think about and think about differently coming into this next decade. And in particular, for people engaging shoppers along that shopper journey, from how we better understand our consumers to be able to market to them through to how we partner with our retailers in those new transaction moments. It's a really meaty topic. And that's what season three is all about. So in our first two seasons, we covered a variety of topics with a future lens that most businesses are thinking about and making plans for today. In this new season, we are focusing on big strategic topics of future influence with the very best strategic thinkers in the industry. So Jay, if you were to place bets, what would you say is going to be the biggest thing that's going to affect the future of Impulse? Drones. No, I'm just kidding. I think it's definitely digital and how that's starting to play a role in our lives, how technology is interconnecting into everything that we do. And when we talk about impulse purchases and impulse zones in the store, that's where we see such huge transformation of our industry and our categories. Absolutely. And then I think the way that the human drivers respond to that context, the elements of our behavior that stick and how they adapt to the changing environment is the part for me that's really interesting and I'm, I'm going to really enjoy talking about more in this episode. Yes, definitely. Me too. And this is just such a rich and exciting topic for our industry and it's going to really transform how we as a business and as a CPG industry think about impulse. So I can't wait to hear this one. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's meet our guests. Thanks for having me. James Mills, I lead the sales function here at Moles Wrigley, and I'm very passionate about Impulse because a large chunk of my career has been spent in the space of category management or working directly with our customers. I think it's one of the areas where we as Moles Wrigley add so much value to the customer relationship because our brands, our expertise, our thinking on Impulse is really highly valued. It's one of those kind of sweet things that you look for with retailers and customers where you you're bringing value beyond just the commercial negotiation. Hi, I'm Hunter Thurman, president of Alpha Diver, an insights and strategy firm that uses a lot of neuroscience in our work, really to get at the fundamental foundational and objective reasons that people think and behave in the ways we do. So very excited to talk about Impulse today as it's really core to the work we do and really core to the human experience that sometimes we don't even recognize in our own daily lives and our own behavior. 
Speaking of understanding human beings and also the sweet things, often in foresight, what we say is that human drivers, those innate impulses within us, don't really change. But the way that they're enacted or enabled in the context of our external world, all the changes that are happening in the context of our lives, that does change. So we like to talk about that crossover in foresight, the need to better understand human motivations today, as well as to actively look at the signals of change shaping our world. So let's start the conversation there at that crossover between the what and the why. When we talk about the human element of our impulses, what we're speaking to is really an array of things. Our innate human impulses that allow us to secure what is most necessary for our survival, like safety, love, happiness. Impulse as a human motivator, a reaction to an action, like wanting to build social status or achieve my goals by acquiring something. So we know that impulses can be triggered, called upon consciously and subconsciously, often irrationally or instinctually, and can generate incredible levels of immediate self-satisfaction. Because of that, perhaps simple definition, and we'll let the neuroscientist in the room speak to this in a more sophisticated way shortly, it is usually a associated with industries and categories where that instant action reaction or need fulfilled moment is brought to life. We've seen this play out in very different ways across time and across different categories from the obvious, like ready to go drinks and snacks, through to the maybe less obvious, like emerging categories around shopping online for clothes or buying copious amounts of books, which I'm guilty of, or buying things to spoil other people like our kids and our pets. So let's start the conversation there and those changes that are taking place. And James, I'm going to kick it over to you to start. How are you seeing impulse change when we look back at the transformations of categories, not just within CPG, but outside of it? I think there's two two things. First, I think, as you said, the fundamental impulse that has driven our business for years, which is that kind of for me, for now, treat or snack, we all have that within us and it's still a massive driver of behavior. And in fact, you know, one of the things that has been a struggle for us during COVID is that people haven't been able to indulge that behavior because they're not out and about and in places where they get triggered to do it. That said, you're absolutely right. It's changing and it's changing in two ways. First, the categories that people are treating themselves with are changing. And I think particularly for millennials, for the Gen Zs, as opposed to the Gen Xs like us, what they define as a treat or a reward is slightly different. You know, it might be an emoji or a skin for a video game, whereas, you know, old people like me, it tends to be physical things that we regard as that treat or snack. So I think that's a change. And you're seeing that manifest itself in physical retail with things like, you know, e-cards and gift cards and things popping up at transaction zones. And then I think the other way that it's changing from the point of view of our business in Moors Wrigley is the effect of digital commerce. Because what you do there is you take away that immediate gratification of, you know, I'm hungry, I'm going to grab a Snickers or I've survived a shop. I want to give myself a little bit of an emotional lift with a pack of Skittles. You take that away and it becomes much more planned. So the shopping behavior needs to be planning for those moments when you might be at home and you might then want to have a treat or a snack from your cupboard. That's hard to crack and that's a challenge for us in our business. Also, just touching on what you mentioned there, the price tag is changing 
right? So you can have an impulse product that doesn't cost you very much, like a $2 pack of mints. You can also have a $20 lipstick that you're buying impulsively. So are you noticing that the competition in that space is broadening? Definitely. And I think, you know, again, one of the challenges for us, what we've got is the price accessibility of our brands and the volume of treating and snacking that you might do with our categories. You know, you might buy a pack of gum every day, Personally, I don't wear very much lipstick, but I'm guessing that you don't buy one every day, even if you are quite a heavy user of the category. So we've got that in our favor, but when we're fighting for space in store, you know, we've got to recognize that the margin that a retailer might make on a $20 Amazon gift card or some kind of, you know, animal crossing skins that they could hang very space efficiently at the checkout. That's a challenge for us. So we've got to make sure that our category keeps up and that we keep spinning fast and driving volume from there in order to justify our presence at that very high value retail estate. Absolutely. And I think as the context for those impulsive decisions changes, we see that humans will lean into different areas of impulse and maybe treat themselves in different ways, as you said. Hunter, we've spoken a little bit about how shopping behaviour is changing and how the competitor set is changing. What are some of those other big shifts in our lives that we're seeing that are influencing impulse triggers? You know, human behavior is actually really durable. In other words, the ways we think and the reactions we have has been the same for a very long time. But as everyone has just said, and James, as you just commented, the context is continually shifting. So yeah, the biggest thing I would add on to what you just said, James, is the digital revolution and, and that everyone talks so much about that. But it really is an interesting topic relative to impulse because it's really shortened the reach from our brain's compulsions, or our impulses really, to being able to satisfy them very directly. We're looking a lot at how the digital world is interacting with the physical world. And in fact, much of the online behavior and the engagement with that, surfing through Insta, whatever, you know, it's a direct embodiment of impulse behavior. I think that's quite interesting, Hunter, because I think in one way, I'm sure you know this better than me, it's probably increased the number of things that are impulsive. So maybe people buy cars on impulse which they never would have done or they did very rarely in the past, you know, because you scroll it through and you suddenly find your dream car. For us, though, I think rather than shorten the distance, it's added distance because when that shopping trip goes from a physical store where they can physically see it touch the product to a digital store, we lose that connectivity and that immediate gratification. So it's kind of lengthened the trip from our side of the fence. That's a great example. When in your life would you have surfed around looking at cars? And you're right, getting on the journey is highly impulsive. And then as Joe said, the path to purchase is where obviously a lot of effort is being put forth, but the principle is the exact same. So I totally agree with you, you know, in, in categories like confections, you know, in front end and things, you know, as you mentioned, for me now are still the two big things that are braid is walking around the world looking for. What's in it for me right now? And confections used to be the best embodiment of that. And now just taking the example of digital, many things have come closer in. So, you know, I think part of the frame shift for an organization like Mars Wrigley is not necessarily to think that now we're further, but that everyone else is equally close in the world of digital. But understanding the compulsions and why somebody engages with a screen, diagnosing that is where then the playing field 
levels and something like infections is actually in a similar potential behavioral state as things like, you know, purchasing apps, engaging with social media, or even something more like, you know, looking at cars or clothing or apparel. You know, Walmart's talked so much about TikTok and the success they've had with that program. It's a really good example. You know, the TikTok interaction was driven really purely by impulse and Walmart's been really successful then driving someone through that journey to actually purchasing. That is really, to me, in terms of the context, what should be thought about is not just, well, people are using phones more or younger consumers are living more in a digital world. They're actually serving still very durable, very predictable drivers within their subconscious mind. And to me, that's the unlock of who's going to win and who's going to decline in, as Joe said, this coming decade of impulse, if we frame it that way. That's it. A fantastic segue to allow us to talk a little bit more about the human drivers of impulses. Impulses are a subconscious response that provide us with immediate basic satisfaction. So if we apply human impulse drivers to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we can see that impulses play a role across the pyramid from those physiological needs to secure safety through to higher level needs to aspire to be something better. How do you see impulse coming to life across that hierarchy of needs? You know, as a person goes through daily life, there are these stressors, what somebody colloquially would just call like annoyances, hassles, the goings on, the requirements of daily life. And essentially, as we go through that, whether we're at a really fundamental level or moving up, you know, towards self-actualization and some of those loftier human pursuits, essentially what impulse behavior is, is a reaction to external stressors. And so the response to that and the brain's reaction to very seamlessly and subconsciously reach for something to provide some relief is very consistent. And it's as true today as it was long ago, as it will be in the future. And, you know, the big shift and the big evolution is what do we have access to reach for that satisfies one of these three core ways in which the brain seeks some relief, seeks some positivity within the flow of everyday life. And so now if you bring that down to our lives, bring it down to day to day, what does that mean in terms of what goes through our brain when we're buying something? If you were buying something on instinct, what's the brain response to that? And that's what's so difficult about it. You know, and in our work, that's where conventional market research of saying, why did you do that? We as human beings are not capable of recognizing it in our own behavior because it happens subconsciously. So we did a study several years back. We had a couple dozen teenagers set up cameras where they were doing their homework. So in their bedroom or their dining table or whatever. And we would simulate themselves, watch them do homework for 45 minutes. And it was like, you know, the driest video you've ever seen. What we were looking for was when they got up and went in the kitchen and brought back a sleeve of Oreos in one case. And what we were really interested in was how often they interacted with their device. And what was really fascinating about it is after the videos, after we'd reviewed them, of course, we'd ask them, how often did you use your phone? Did you use your phone? Predominantly, the answer was, no, I didn't use it. Maybe I picked it up and they would sort of try to think three to five times, maybe. The average number of times that they actually picked up and looked at their phone was 16. And so it's a really glaring example of where they didn't even realize consciously how often and how much they were picking up and looking at their phone. So what was going on deep in their subconscious brain was boredom and frustration. Their brain was going, eh, we need a little relief. In some cases it was grabbing, you know, something sweet, like literally something to consume. But more often than not, it was picking up the phone and scrolling through it. And so, you know, when you talk about the embodiment in modern life, 
you know, it's so important to understand why they were doing that, what need it was fulfilling so that if you were trying to fulfill that need or you were trying to change behavior in some way, you could do so, you know, recognizing that it's this really pre-conscious, unrecognized behavior, even to them themselves. And yet it is fulfilling a really crucial need for them of getting them through that homework session. And Hunter, I think maybe you're misremembering. I think they picked up a packet of M&Ms, but that's all right. We'll, we'll let that one slide. I didn't give gum its due credit, but there was an awful lot of oh, gum. That's good to hear. <laughs> one thing I wanted to touch on there that you mentioned was the word relief. And I think also just tapping into the fact that probably once they picked up their phones, they realized what they were doing. And that's that action reaction of people trying to sort of curb or curtail or do better or be better and find those solutions that ladder up to their more aspirational needs as human beings. And I feel like that's slightly connected to James, what you were saying before around really what you were touching on there was sort of upgrades. Buying a car could be one way to turn that impulsive trigger into an action. Upgrading your rental car or upgrading your TV is all those little small things that ladder up, which leads me to a question around how we make slightly better decisions. So when we're looking at our choices across the spectrum and when we're potentially looking at there's a chocolate bar and then there's a slightly more premium chocolate bar or there's a chocolate bar that perhaps is made more ethically, those decisions across the spectrum that consumers are starting to make that both satisfy their instant need for gratification, but also connect in with their sort of higher level needs around being a, put simply, better human being. Are you starting to see that play out, James, in the context of CPG? I mean, I think, you know, what Hopter was talking about is really interesting because what we've always talked about with our model for impulse in store, we always talk about three fundamental need states. We talk about recharge, we talk about reward, and then the third area we talk about is a remind. And to your question, Joe, Yes, all these things like sustainability, it definitely is working. And I'll give you a very direct example of this, actually, where we know it's working. So obviously, whenever we do any kind of off-shelf display in a store, we get people impulse buying from that. And in Tesco's in the UK recently, we've just done a trial where we've made the display itself out of 30% recycled bean board. Uh, The bean board is made from recycled cocoa beans. And we put all over the design of the unit, we're going greener. And we advertise the fact that the cardboard itself was more sustainable. In fact, we saved, I think, 18 Olympic swimming pools of water by using this beanboard technology. The point I'm trying to get to here is the product on display was the same as normal. It was just regular M&Ms. The promotion was no different from what we would normally do on an off-shelf promotion but the sales were significantly higher, which I think does speak to what you were talking about there, Joe, that if you're able to marry people's fundamental desire for that reward with something that makes them feel good in other ways, like they're doing the right thing for the planet, then actually you will trigger more of that impulse. And maybe the way I would characterize it, and Hunter can probably speak better to this, is you've got to remove some of those barriers that come in the way. And if one of the barriers is, oh, you know, I'm creating more waste, I'm creating more trash, as we would say, this side of the pond, I'm practicing my American, I hope to speak it fluently (laughs) one day. If I am creating more waste, or maybe I don't want to purchase that item, whatever it is, if you can remove some of those barriers, then you will trigger more impulse. Yeah, I think you're spot on and people have certain values. And if we can give them an easier way to activate against those values, then 
we have a, a recipe for success. I think another great example is sort of in that space that we're seeing grow in terms of impulse, which is speedy delivery. A great example that I really love is the Joker collaboration, which, you know, they have those C-store delivery model, one to 1.5 miles delivery in 15 minutes, which is obviously tapping into like immediately, I just need something right now. They've partnered with Too Good To Go, which is a company that's taking the misfit product of supermarket shelves, the stuff that doesn't sell that would normally go to waste. And they're selling those products through that platform. So again, it's sort of like an example of where if you give people an opportunity to get that immediate satisfaction and tap into their higher level value systems, you can have some really tremendous results. Hunter, is that something that you're also seeing around the connection between how human behaviors are changing in the context of human impulse drivers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something that's an example or an analogy that's talked about a lot in, you know, neuroscience circles is this analogy of the horse and the rider. The idea being that us as beings are akin to a rider atop a horse. And the horse is our subconscious, impulsive part of our brain. The analogy is very powerful. It's actually much stronger than the rider who thinks that he or she is, you know, in full control. And in fact, they do work together. The horse is still a very powerful and much more, you know, it, it's not nearly as um, considerate of, of what's going on. It's moving through space in a bit more blunt way. And the rider is playing the more conscious role um, in, in our behavior. And, and in James's example, or, or in the question of a chocolate treat or a chocolate confection versus like a fair trade, the horse wants the chocolate. That's the impulse piece. That's the reward. That's the subconscious piece. And to the degree the fair trade or the, the bean bore sustainability piece satisfies or helps the rider rationalize and narrate the behavior to say, hey, that made sense. I can feel better about that. Absolutely. It's like a one-two punch versus just serving the horse. So it's absolutely beneficial. And, and in our work, that's where we're trying to be very deliberate about which, which is what serving. It's important to recognize in that analogy that the confection is actually really driving the impulse and things like sustainability or fair trade or, or secondary things help the writer rationalize it, help the writer feel good about it. But it's a different part of their brain. It's a different part of cognition that's driving that. And, and to me, when you can add that one-two punch or, or to your point, shorten the, the arm's length, shorten the friction with things like delivery service or close-in availability, the horse still wants it. That's the impulse piece, the ability to get it via things like delivery. That's sort of the second, the more conscious piece of it. And those can be very powerful in combination. I think it's a brilliant point. And I think now where we've gone wrong as a business or an industry and where retailers occasionally have gone too far is where they're just talking to the rider and forgetting the horse. So, you know, it's where so many people have tried to do, you know, chocolate that is vegan or low calorie, low fat, low sugar, and it never really breaks through because the horse doesn't want to eat it. And the same is true with displays in store. And We've done a lot of research around, you know, how, how do you optimize the checkout space? And the, the answer is if you make it all for the rider and you just put a load of carrots at the checkout, actually, maybe the horse would prefer the carrots, but let's not mix this up. But if you just put healthy stuff at the checkout, you're purely good for you things then the sales go down because there's nothing for the horse. You take away that fundamental impulse reward moment. 
But equally, if you ignore those people that are looking for those healthier choices, then you shut out a percentage of shoppers. Like most things in life, the answer is balance. And, you know, what you've got to get to is a balanced checkout display that offers something for the horse and something for the rider in the right measures so that as a retailer, you can optimize the display that you've got. And as manufacturers, we can maximize our sales through there. We're really getting the ROI of this metaphor as well, which is great. (laughs) Let's not forget also that when we talk about the rider and the horse, of course, people are people. They're not robots reacting automatically to things in their world. So we are still ultimately in control of our decisions. And that's exactly what the consumer wants, to be in control of the decisions that they make. And that's true with the balance checkout as well. One of the things that shoppers say is where they feel dictated to because all of it is carrots or healthy options or vice versa, where they feel they're being pushed with everything that's more indulgent, more pleasurable things. They don't like either of those things because they feel like a retailer is trying to shape or influence their behavior. They want to feel in control of their own impulses and they want to be given a choice. You know, this piece about impulse, it's often perceived as like something to be avoided. Impulsive behavior is inherently negative or to be avoided. But, you know, the reality of it from a cognitive standpoint is it plays a really important role and a really positive role. You know, it's very natural to our thought processes. So recognizing that and recognizing that this is actually doing something good for us in the grand scheme and that, you know, sometimes the best control is absolution a bit of a break. If I've been shopping Tesco, I've been in a lot of control. There's been a lot of shop, a lot of money and a lot of brains thinking about category management and shopper, um, you know, merchandising and, and, and store flow and, and the way I interact with my digital device. I, I've had control granted to me in spades. And sometimes, you know, in the analogy of the traditional front end at the till, a bit of absolution is actually really valuable and and really important in the broader picture of that shopping experience and not something to be avoided or controlled because it's actually playing a really valuable role in the broader experience. And of course, the analogy of all things in moderation, I guess, applies, but it really is cognitively, uh, this is doing so much more for us than just providing a bit of, of sugar, fat, and salt. It's actually providing a lot of mental benefit as well. And that absolution that those categories can grant is actually really important in the overall experience and, and the, the shopper in that case having a feeling of control over it. Honestly, I think that is really undervalued. As somebody who has twins, you know, when we used to do the weekly shot with two four-year-olds punching each other in the face in the in the chopping cart, I really needed that absolution at the end. That emotional lift was my salvation. <laughs> and I think it is something that shoppers really value at the end of the trip. It's their reward for having been through the pain of managing that weekly shop. Let's talk about the fun bit and what might be in store for the future of Impulse. Whenever a group of people have an unmet drive, a market will form to satisfy it. And if there's one thing we've seen recently, it's the boom in innovation alongside the redefinition of what we need. The way that Impulse is playing out today will inevitably be different in the context of the future and the changes in technology, the changes in the way we shop and the changes in the way that we live. Hunter, how do we see the definition of impulse changing or what impulse means to humans? Will that change or really will the innate drivers remain the same? Tell me a bit about how you see that playing out in the future. 
Yeah, the innate drivers will stay the same. You know, we are incredibly durable in terms of the way we've evolved to think and act out in the world. But of course, the world that we'll be living in changes constantly and more quickly than ever. So I think the good news for someone who's trying to understand behavior and serve people's needs is the needs don't really change. The ways we could serve them and the way they'll be experiencing those needs will change. And so, you know, I think there's really kind of two paths that we're seeing. There's obviously the digital one, the fact that we'll be able to engage with our phones, serve impulses, you know, with continuing speed and ease, the physical world will be brought to us via digital. But the other thing that we're seeing is this sort of re-embracing and re-immersion, especially among younger consumers, back into the physical world. And it's not to say they're eschewing digital, but the fact that people will continue to interact personally and even more concertedly that kind of bifurcation and I think really the interaction between the two, doing things online that lead very directly to real physical experiences, that's what's going to continue to emerge or already seen it in the data that we track. What's really interesting and what you said there around our need to reconnect physically with the world around us and the tacticity and, and the growth of that, I think is something that we're really noticing. And Sophie and I have had a lot of conversations about that, sort of tapping into your, your senses, which is really under-leveraged. It's also under-leveraged in the online space. We know that there is a growth of online shopping and online commerce and James, I have a question for you on that, which is in direct relation to an article that I read from Retail Wire that asked, is e-commerce killing or inspiring impulse buys? I think it's doing a bit of both because I think it's created whole new areas of impulse that just not possible in a physical world. You know, we talked about the car example, Hunter was talking about Carvana earlier. I think that digital commerce there is creating a whole new type of impulse that just isn't, you're not able to do in a physical world. But I think it's posing a challenge in our types of categories because you've removed that immediate gratification that we were talking about earlier. And I think there's two things we've got to do. I think the first thing we were talking earlier about the likes of Uber Eats and DoorDash and Deliveroo. I think they're the closest in the digital world. And I think you know, categories like ours are going to be really, really important in those types of retail environments. Because when I'm sitting on the sofa watching a movie, that's when I might want a pack of M&Ms to share. And I'm not going to go and order for delivery tomorrow. I want it in 15 minutes. And that's when I'm going to go to those Uber Eats of the world. So I think it's really important that our category is focused in there in the digital space. And then I think for more traditional digital commerce shopping, that weekly grocery shop, which has been migrating online for a long time, there's a couple of things we've got to do. I think we've got to make it more exciting. We've got to leverage our content, the experience of our brands more when people come into the category. And then I think the other thing we've got to do is start to think about how we get ourselves associated with those search terms like movie night. You know, so when people are actually looking to get their prime video off Amazon, why don't we also offer them the chance to get those M&Ms in advance so that instead of needing to go to Uber Eats, when I have that sofa moment watching the movie and I want to have a little treat or a snack, it's already in the cupboard because I planned ahead from a shopping perspective, even though the impulse occasion is still there from the consumption perspective. And I think that's the challenge for us. 
one other thing that I think is really important in the physical space, Joe, seamless checkout. When you take away that checkout at the end of the call, at the end of the shop, you lose that, I love your phrase here, Hunter, your moment of absolution, your reward at the end. And I think there, manufacturers, not just us, but the beverage, the treating and snacking, the battery guys, we've got to work with our retail partners on total store design so that as people come to exit the store, they're still offered those right moments of absolution. Something that we've spoken about a lot is how you create meaningful friction. So we're talking about frictionless shopping, frictionless checkouts in the future. But instead, if we reframe that to think about how, in fact, do you take the fluidity of the shopping journey and trigger something in the subconscious mind that doesn't have to be just at the end of the shop in a particular location, but rather that speaks to you so innately talks to the moment or the fundamental needs that you have in your brain in that instant and instead triggers you to pick up a product or to want to make that impulsive purchase whilst you're at any point in the shopping journey. And I think that that's where the future is going to be. And Joe's spoken a little bit about things like emotional AI. And that will be the future of retailers when you're going around the shop and something will jump out at you that absolutely speaks to how you are feeling in that moment. And if you are feeling tired or bored or frustrated and then something speaks to you on a personal level, that is more likely to unlock that subconscious impulse and for the rider on the horse to say, yes, actually, you do deserve that. You should put that in your basket. You do deserve that craving or that product. We've spoken a lot about meaningful friction and how that becomes the reframe on frictionless stores. First, a violent agreement. The big challenge here, and Hunt talked about it, the number of people who are on these devices, I'm holding up my phone for those of you listening, whilst shopping is huge. I think it's like 80% of people are actually on their phones. So Hunter talked about that. How do you connect the physical and the digital? And I think with the internet of things, there's going to be some really cool stuff starting to emerge in that space. So that as I'm shopping, my phone knows I've entered the confectionery aisle and I get M&M's pop-ups. And the question is, how do you do that in a way that you don't annoy people? You know, because you can't do it on everything. And then I think the big challenge for retailers and manufacturers is how we all get more joined up because the whole store layout, I mean, even just talking about physical store layouts, it's so siloed at the moment in how we do business. You know, we're a confectionery manufacturer. We talk to the confectionery buyer. The confectionery buyer designs the confectionery aisle in isolation of all the rest of the store around it. But what the shopper is demanding is a much more integrated experience through their physical store. And on top of that, they want that digital integration as well. And how we get the right conversations between manufacturers and retailers to create those, to use your language, Sophie, frictionless journeys, that's going to be the big battle of the next decade, I think, for the CPG industry. I agree with all of that. There are these impulse zones, like the brass tacks of retail design and category management. About 95% of shoppers, like a super high percentage, go down the chip aisle, the salty sacks aisle. And yet, very few have a brand on their list. And so we've done lots of studies and we typically see that 50% of shoppers have a list. 50% are what we call ambient shoppers. They walk the planogram and let their senses guide them. So the list shoppers will still go down the salty aisle, but on their list, it says chips. They're impulsively then deciding which to buy. 
And in terms of basket building and all that, there's huge opportunities there. And so the recognition of that and the fact that the chip aisle is actually an impulsive zone that shoppers have evolved to actually look forward to. They're actually looking forward to that bit of impulsive behavior and saying, look, I know I'm going down there and I'm just going to behave impulsively and grab one, two, maybe three bags. I've never necessarily heard that talked about relative to something like the candy. I mean, there's a lot of lay down bags from a merchandising perspective. It really doesn't feel like what the category is in some retail environments. So Joe, in your example of if I impulsively buy an exciting new type of M&Ms and I have to wait 15 minutes for it, there's actually some benefit to that. It's called potentiation. The M&Ms, they actually will taste better because I had to wait a little bit and I had to anticipate and build it up. And even for something like confections that conventionally has been like, grab it, eat it. The lengthening in like that digital or e-commerce delivery context actually has some real advantages for us. It's a really interesting point and sort of touches on what we often talk about, which is the joy of the journey of going to get your chocolate right through to when you enjoy it at home or share it with your family. And there's a lot to be said for making that shopping experience better than what it is and what it has been on top of all of the fantastic innovation that we're seeing inside of that space. And I've got one last question for both of you, which is around that innovation that we're starting to see and the progress coming into this next decade of thinking about how we can attain what we want to attain in a maybe slightly more novel and improved way. And going back to James, your point at the start of the show, since 2014, we've been talking about the diminishing front of store. So these things do take a lot longer than what we anticipate. But we are seeing things like, as an example, my favorite, which is drone food delivery. I think this is a huge booming area. We've seen it in startups like Mana in Ireland. Here in the US, we've got Kroger. Walmart has partnered with Flytrex. You've got on-demand drone delivery startups like drone up. My question to each of you is, what do you think is going to be the the real revolution when we talk about activating impulse from a shopping perspective coming into this next decade? I think Hunter's nailed it, actually. And if you you fancy Joe Ponte, you can't actually figure out how we do it. But I think he's going to be the, it's the connection between the physical and the digital space. That's going to be the real revolution. And, you know, there is, I think the best thing I've seen is in your home country, Joe, our Snickers hungerism, where we link together, you know, the social media streams and trying to figure out whether the internet was getting angry or hangry and then working with 7-Eleven to send consumers discount vouchers and Snickers to cure that hanger that we were picking up from the internet and actually driving traffic into 7-Eleven through those mobile devices. I just think that's brilliant. It's the best example I've seen in our business and actually I think in our industry of doing it. And I think we're going to see a ton more of those kind of things happening. And that's going to be fun for all of us as shoppers. You know, we look at everything through a very scientific lens rather than assume drone delivery is good because it gets products to people faster. But look at it from the human, the experiential factor, you know, as you mentioned, Joe, and really look at it more objectively and say, well, it may be that it's faster. It may be that the experience of drone delivery is actually exciting and builds anticipation. And don't assume that we know what people want or why they want it. Look at it from a more objective scientific lens. You know, I see so many retailers now looking at one hour free delivery. So practical, so rational. It's sort of like you can have what we sell quickly and inexpensively. There's no appeal. It doesn't serve the horse in the analogy that we gave earlier at all. 
thinking about something like drone delivery of the excitement of drone delivery versus the convenience of drone delivery, it's just a different way of framing it. To me, looking at impulse the way you guys are talking about from this really fundamental level lets you rethink why would drone delivery be beneficial? And you can see this thing moving through space coming towards you. There's a, a scientific case we made that that's the more beneficial part, the more exciting part, you know, more impulsive part that will drive someone back to it. We humans in modern life are enduring an incredible amount of stimuli and filtering out most of it. Understanding the things that won't get filtered out because they actually perform a valuable subconscious purpose, that's where you can really serve the needs people actually have that they don't even recognize themselves. And that's going to be the things that win longer term. Thank you to James and Hunter for the fabulous conversation covering what is a heartland topic, not just for our business, but more importantly, as you heard, is a foundation for how we behave as human beings. When we consider how our world is changing and how that context is evolving around those enduring human motivations, it means that businesses are also facing into big changes for how we activate impulse moments and tap into those impulsive drivers. As James said, that's hard to crack and that's a challenge in our business, but it's also an incredibly exciting opportunity. For anyone listening today, working in an industry where you engage with people, you sell to people, or you create for people, there is so much benefit in more deeply understanding their conscious and subconscious motivations to ultimately give them back control, create experiences that are more meaningful for them, and to help them live a life that is more rewarding. Stay with us as we explore more of those rich strategic topics as part of our Future Of series. This is Joe, And this is Sophie. Until then, stay curious. If you enjoy our show, be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player so you don't miss new episodes. And if you can, a five-star Apple review goes a long way to help us connect with other curious thinkers like yourself, and we really appreciate it. The views expressed on this podcast are that of the show's creators, the foresight leaders within Mars Wrigley, and don't necessarily reflect the views of Mars or other employers. Future Imagined is a production of Stories Bureau, produced by Elisa Manjares, with editing and sound design by Matha de Leon. Thank you.